Good morning, Bethany. Okay, let's not trip over the mat. <laughs> Good morning. I'd like you to turn to Luke 6. And we'll begin with chapter or, or uh, verse 17 through 36. Get ready to be challenged if you hadn't read that this week when Pastor Jeff um, sent it to us. It's quite packed. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out of him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to, to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to, to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you, hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I told you you'd be challenged. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pam. Well, we're back in Luke, and as Pam said, it's a packed full passage. It's uh, a sermon of Jesus. We transitioned from Luke building his authority of Jesus in some of his acts and some of the things he has done early in the book, now to a extended sermon that we'll talk about for the next two weeks. Let me pray for our time. Lord, would you bless the word today as we heard it read and now as we seek to understand it and apply it? Let not one person in here today leave uh, without being impacted by your truth. Spirit, do the work now that you do by challenging us in the word and growing us in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the month of February is a time when state of the union or state of the state or state of the city speeches are made. And in those gatherings, people, those state of the union, state of the state, or city speeches, people gather together as a community, don't they? Whether it's online, on TV, watching a president, or here in town with our mayor speaking, they come together as a community, and our leaders will speak about the state of things, how things are going. Well, last week, Canby Mayor Brian Hodson, who's in his 11th year, you probably know him, he's been doing it a long time, he made his state of the city speech. And he was quoted in the Canby Herald as saying, generally my goal with every state of the city address over the last 10 years is to give a recap how the previous year was, the challenges and successes we had, and looking ahead to this year and coming years. What are the things we, the city, Canby, are looking at, getting accomplished? 
or we can head off potential challenges we might already know are coming our way. There's a desire, as you hear in Mayor Hudson's words, for the city to be informed. You, as citizens, who we are and where we've come and, and where we're going. What are we going to be as a community in, in the coming years? And he went on to talk about the community citizens' involvement. He said, we really crave that input from Canby citizens about where they want to go in the next 20 years. How do we want to grow, develop, and frame our transportation system or formulate future housing? And what will that mix look like? How do we grow, he asked. What, what do we want? What will we look like in 20 years? All valid questions, all valid questions that any community should be asking itself. And a state of a union address, uh, or state of a city, as in this case, is a perfect place to address those questions. And any good leader knows that those questions must be in front of a group of people. Any community. Who are we? What do we want to be? What do we value as a people? Jesus and Luke is telling us about our community. Who we are to be. You know, on first look, as Pam was reading it, or you maybe looked at it this week to get ready, which you should, I want to encourage you to do that. Every week, look ahead and read just to get your mind thinking about the passage. But on a first look, this might not be what you think is the primary theme of Jesus' state of the kingdom address, we might call it, which is essentially Luke's summary of the Sermon on the Mount, what we get here in Luke. But that's exactly what we see. Jesus is beginning to put together, piece together, of a community of new people, a new type of community with new citizens of this community. Jesus is building kingdom citizens for his kingdom. That's what he wants to do. And if you and I want to be part of that kingdom and where it's come from, our history, that's important, who we are today, and what are we going to be in 20 years? It's important for us to pay attention to Jesus's words. Can you imagine, do a little mental exercise with me, if you could be, had the ability to travel in time, and you just today got plopped down on the, in the streets of uh, ancient Israel, and you were dropped down into the streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, right? I mean, would you know what it means to be a citizen of that town? Where to go? What would be expected of you? What's okay and what's not okay? You would have no idea, would you? And it could take something as simple as looking at the wrong person for you to find yourself end up in jail or something. We just, you wouldn't know. It matters that we know not only why we need community, but what our community is to value as Jesus' kingdom citizens and, and how we're to live together. But also how we look at those who aren't in our community yet. Because what we'll see, we're going to look at, as we today look at this chapter, passage in Luke 6, this half of the chapter, we're going to see what the world, uh, what the kingdom, excuse me, prizes, what we're to prize as citizens of this kingdom is actually what the kingdom of the world despises. So what we prize, Jesus says, the world actually despises those things. And we are empowered in an entirely different way than the kingdom of the world. So we're going to look at three truths today of the new kingdom, the promise of the kingdom, uh, the values of this kingdom, and then how to grow to be a person that fits into this kingdom. So get your outline ready. Just got a few points there, but lots of space for you to jot notes down or important things. Remember, if you're in a growth group too, the more you kind of think and things that stand out to you, make a mental note of, the richer your discussion will be. So do that today. Uh, we're going to look at, as we look at this, the promise, what we prize, maybe what the world despises, and how we grow to fit into this kingdom. So here's our first truth about the promise of the kingdom. Jesus comes to make a new kingdom of all people groups. All people groups. People from all over the world. God has always been in the business of community making. The community making business, you could call it. And we can go all the way back, just to prove this point, we can go all the way back to the garden. The Garden of Eden. To see that God puts the woman and the man there to be fruitful and multiply, to be social, to live in a family community, and then they were actually to spread out from the garden, I believe actually to spread out over the entire world, 
I believe if that would have happened, if they actually passed the garden test, they would have continued to spread that community out in God's rule and reign over the world in loving, good community. But we know that didn't happen, right? It's not what happened. Destruction and death in the community came with Adam and Eve's sinful choice. And the very first family even uh, commits fratricide, the killing of your brother or sister as Cain murdered his brother Abel. As soon as it had begun, almost as soon as it had begun, it all is spoiled through humanity's sin. Yet what does God do? He doesn't give up on community. He moved further in and and, and intervenes again with the great-grandchildren of Abraham. You remember in Genesis, Abraham. The 12 sons of Jacob, Abraham's great-grandchildren. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, he's, he's building a community He's gathering people again and giving them leaders and, and representatives and, and pulling them together. And it is in the context of Moses, after Abraham, and the formulation of the Jewish people who were brought out of slavery and the giving of the law of God that this sermon from Jesus comes. You actually can't really understand it apart from the context of God's community gathering that he's always done. But in particular, the Israelites and Moses and the Ten Commandments, and the Twelve Tribes. How is that the case? We're meant to pick up in verse 17. Remember that in verses 12 through 16 we did last week, Jesus was up on the mountain. Think mountaintop. That's an important setting. Moses, mountaintop too. He's up on the mountain praying all night. And he chooses with, in communion with his father, the Twelve Disciples. And disciples means an apprentice, a follower, a learner of Jesus. And he chooses them and he comes down the mountain. That's important. Think Moses up, down. Jesus comes down the mountain with this ethical teaching now about the new community. That ring a bell. When was the last time this happened? Why 12 men? Well, Moses went up the mountain to pray with God. And he calls the 12 tribes and he comes down with the Ten Commandments, God's word, the law. Well, here's what the purpose of the law Moses and Jesus give. What is it? Well, some look at Jesus' moral teaching, whether you're here today or especially outside the community of the church. Look at Jesus' moral teaching and say, well, okay, here's how to live. Here's how to be a really good Christian. Here's the rules. Follow these things and you will find God and God will find you and God will accept you and bless you. As if the core of Christianity was just be good. A lot of people believe that. Maybe you're here today and that's what you believe Christianity represents. A bunch of people just trying to be good. And if you're here today and Christianity's new to you, as I said, maybe that's your understanding of the way things are. I would venture that that's most people's view of why there are morals and, or ethical laws in Judaism and Christianity. But if you know the story of the Israelites and the Exodus, that's why context matters. That's why we're meant to see Luke wants us to think of Moses and the Israelites. That's why it matters. If you know the context of that Exodus story, it can't be that way. In Exodus, he does not give the people the law and then save them, does he? That's not the way he works. He doesn't say, well, here's the Ten Commandments. I know you're in slavery. Here's the Ten Commandments. If you keep them, then I will save you. If you keep them, then I will free you. As if that was how Christianity worked as well. No, what did God do? He saved them. He freed them. Then he gave them the law. So if he'd already saved them, why give them the law? It couldn't be to save them. They already were saved. Why give them the law? Well, he was making a new group of people who were to grow into his kind of people, the Israelites now, and show the world what it would look like to live under God's saving kingship in peace and harmony and love. But we know they failed too, didn't they? You know, the reason our relationships unravel, so citizen now, people, neighbors, family members, the reason our relationships unravel and fail, it's always because our relationship with God has unraveled first. And that's what we see time and time again in the Bible. When the relationship with God unravels, we see it play out 
on a horizontal level as well. When the vertical fails, we, the horizontal falls apart too. They go hand in hand. So as he frees them from slavery and the relationship is restored, so too their relationship to each other should be restored as well. That's what we're getting at here now in this sermon in Luke 6. He's bringing into existence a new people. And so with verse 17, now look down, with the 12 there, and verse 17 says, a great crowd of disciples, so there was more, and it adds there, a great multitude of people, so three people groups are here, from Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So Jew and Gentile are now here. That's what Luke wants us to see, as Luke writes to Gentiles. He's building this new community of all people, our first point says, Jew and Gentile. And now verse 19, the power, he says, is coming out of him to teach and heal, Luke writes, and put together a new people. He's the one who can do it. Luke says the power comes from him. It came out of him. I don't think Luke means that they emptied him like a gas tank gets empty, no. He just means the power comes from him. It comes out of him. That's why the new people is going to be built. It's from him. So these morals, they aren't just a new ethical manual for us to follow to be good individuals. No, he's putting together a community again like he always does and has been since the garden and Abraham and Moses and the Israelites, the 12 tribes, and now the 12 disciples and new 12 tribes. It's us. It's Jew and Gentile. It's all. Do you see that? That's really important for the context. So to be saved then by Jesus doesn't just mean having your sins forgiven. It's not less than that. It is that, and that's really important. But it also means just as much, I think, being formed into a new community. That's why discipleship matters so much here at Bethany Church. Well, we talk about it a lot. And while we've got a long way to go as a church to become, continue to grow as a culture that makes disciples who make disciples, we've got a long way to go. But there's a lot of encouraging things happening here and a lot of encouragement because we know Jesus is the power is coming from him, not us, Luke writes. We need the community. So, yes, saving from your sins is important, but just as important as, well, now what? We've asked this question before. What's your salvation for? What's it for? Yes, save, but it's not just fire insurance, is it? <laughs> it's not just fire insurance. He's building a new community. Like Mayor Hudson said, when people come together, their ideas matter. They're stronger. As he said, we crave the people to come together. Maybe not all the people. I, I should ask him about that. But he, yeah, he, people come together. Ideas. And they're stronger. It's, it, it's God's logic. That one thread alone, right, is, is weak. You can take one thread, those of you maybe knit, yarn, sew, and you can just pull it apart like, like, like nothing. But you put together a hundred threads or a million threads, you can make a strong rope, can't you, that could pull a boat, a car, you know? So here's this new community that will display as a kingdom to the world what it looks like to be back in relationship with God. That's what the community has always done. Let's think about the importance of this. I was just at the Moda Center last night for a concert, and I've gone there two different times. And one time I went on by myself, right? And last night I was there with a buddy. And the different experience is totally different. The first time by myself, a great song happened. I was like, wasn't that song? Oh, yeah, I'm by myself. <laughs> it's just me here. It's just me. But last night, we're, we're leaving the concert and walking down the, the stairways that go out. Oh, man, and people are like, wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that great? Oh, didn't you love that song? Well, didn't you love, didn't you love that, you know? They, they, they were sharing the experience in a community. You know, think of a movie, a book you like, a piece of music, or uh, a, a good trip vacation that you had. Isn't it much better when you can sit down with those who were there and reminisce about it? And you do that. Every time you leave something where you're like, wasn't that great? The experience of sharing it together in a community, we light up with joy, don't we? When we look somebody in the eyes and we go, you too? Oh, you like that too? It's like the kindred spirit kind of thing. I thought I was the only one that liked that. Oh, you like it too? You, you, when you find that, you know how good that feels? That's, community matters. That's what we're to do. 
Now, our thing isn't a Bruce Springsteen concert, which that's what I saw last night, the boss, but it's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's our thing, our person. That's who we share in. We light up. Or how about our culture's emphasis on individual identity and meaning? We're just making a case for the need of community here. No one's going to tell me what is right and wrong. You know what I think? I think Camby needs a max line to Portland. I think that's a great idea, don't you? Well, everyone thinks that's a dumb idea, and it's going to cost us billions of dollars, Mayor Hudson says. We want to hear from all Canby residents on transportation infrastructure because some of us have dumb ideas. <laughs> we need each other, and we need community. See, it doesn't work by yourself. We need community to form an identity, a purpose, values, worth, meaning, and that's just what Jesus is doing here yeah, but you say, I, I, I've got my own inner compass, my heart and my desires to follow, and that's who makes me who I am, and that's the message of our culture. Here's a few quotes. Uh, Kristen Stewart, famous actress, said, if you feel like you really want to define yourself and you've got the ability to articulate those parameters and that in itself defines you, then do it, you know? Beyonce, your self-worth is determined by you. You don't have to depend on someone else telling you who you are. And we can go to any decade and any type of person. Mr. Miyagi from the 80s. There you go. If it comes from inside you, it's always the right one. The problem is it doesn't work. How do I know? Go to your boss tomorrow and say, you know, it comes from inside of me. And I should be paid about a million a year. And Mr. Miyagi said it's always the right one if it comes from inside me. Is that going to work? That's not going to work. Jesus comes and says he is forming a new community of Jew and Gentile, and there's power coming from me to heal and make whole and to show what it looks like to have a relationship with God and each other restored. You can't do that alone, can you? We can't share in the joy alone. Our message is not amplified when it's just me, myself, and I. But when we come together as a church, locally and universally, wow, watch out. The world will see what it looks like to live restored here and what it does here. So that's our first truth. We need community. And Jesus is doing it here. To be, we need to be apprentices of him. Here's our second truth. It's the largest portion of our text. But the new kingdom prizes what the world despises. The new kingdom prizes what the world despises. I wanted that to be easy to remember. You know, we could spend a few weeks on this, just this section and unpack um, in verses 20 through 36 all these ethical, ethical teachings, and that would be valid. We're not doing that today. We're doing a much higher flyover. We're going to revisit the sermon next week. We will talk about Jesus' teaching in other Gospels. Um, we're just not going to spend uh, four years in Luke. Uh, we'll probably spend a couple, but not four. Um, so we're going to do a little bit more, a higher flyover. Any time a leader, now Jesus here of a new community, or any time leadership changes, whether it's your job or your school, new principal maybe, or it happens in government every few years and four years, a new set of standards come in, doesn't it? Sometimes an entirely new cabinet comes in, if you think on the national level. Why? Because the new boss prizes different things than the old boss did, different values, and here in verse 20, Jesus says, I'm bringing a new kingdom, verse 20 says, new kingdom with new values, new things that are valuable, that I want you to value. Internal values, he takes it to the heart level a lot, Jesus does. Internal values. Jesus as our king now, the new leader, is telling us what he prizes as he sets up this new community. And two things we need to see from the blessings and woes of the passage is how Jesus' community treats others inside the community, so that's here, but also outside the community. He gives us both. And what we get here are two different sets of values as well. Things we prize, and what we find is the things we are to prize as Jesus' apprentices are the things the world despises. Things they would not look highly upon. Look at verse 24 to see one set of values. Uh, it's the woes, which is a sorrow, a sadness, a sense of even judgment. 
the woes there in verse 24. What values do we see in the second set? All riches. So money, material goods, having lots of stuff and toys and status that comes with that. Verse 25, a fullness there. A fullness, a comfort, a a satiation, an abundance, a, a storehouse of fullness. Verse 26, laughter. You're like, well, laughter, how could that be? Uh, it kind of means a little more than just like laughing at a joke there or the joy of laughter. What, what I think Jesus is getting at there means a kind of gloating, a kind of success, a kind of comparing to, uh, yourself to others and looking down in victory and kind of scoffing laughter at those other people. Laughter. Verse 27, they speak well of you. The most social media followers, you've got that and that's your goal. The best resume, popularity, all the other students love me and follow my lead on what's popular. Well, there's one set of values, the woes. Here's the other. Look back at verse 20 now, up in the text up higher. The Beatitudes, which Matthew records as well. Poverty, being poor. There's blessing in that. Or maybe poverty, think a weakness, a lack of influence that comes with not having much status or power that comes with wealth. Poverty, verse 21, to be hungry, sacrifice, loss of things and material possessions and mourning and and weeping now and grief and sadness. Verse 22, not to be the insider, have the, the most social media followers, But to be outside, excluded, not popular for Jesus' name. We've got a sign-up list for this community. It'll be out at the counter afterwards. If you really want to get involved in this community, you, you, you hear that? Like, wow, Jesus, these are the things you prize? The world despises all these things. These are very clear two sets of values, aren't they? And very different. I was thinking we're going to change our name to the church, the Fellowship of Sad, Depressed, Excluded Individuals. With that list. I mean, that's, that's, those are, that's, that's pretty serious, those two lists. When you compare them side by side, there's blessing in going through trials, weeping, loss of status and stuff. Here's what I found really helpful. There's a commentary I read this week edited by John Stott. There was a man in it who wrote it, Michael Wilcox. He helps us understand these aren't just rules, but they're values. They're things to be aware of and prize, and there's things to be wary of and suspect. He says this, in the life of God's people will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. It's the upside-down kingdom. They will prize what the world calls pitiable, and they will suspect, be wary of, what the world thinks is desirable. In other words, you know, Jesus is not commanding us that in poverty alone that there's virtue. Or that just because somebody's uh, more poor makes them more pious? He's not saying that. But suspect riches. Be suspect of that. And know that there's a unique temptation that comes to those who do rely on great wealth and status and power and stuff. But on the other hand, to know that in poverty does come blessing now. And Jesus loves the poor. He really does. He really does. In poverty comes blessing. Now, notice he doesn't say to those who are poor will have blessing someday, does he? It's not someday, it's now. No, he says blessed now, which is a strong word for, for happiness and satisfaction now. You see, what Jesus is saying is salvation doesn't mean there's just virtue in poverty alone or sadness alone, or exclusion alone, but that there is a very rich experience and honor that can come from the loss of these things, of what the world values, and the discovery of how rich and fulfilling life can be with Jesus when he is all you have left. That's what Jesus is saying in these two value sets. And you don't get that kind of blessing, Jesus is saying, blessed are those He says, you don't get that kind of blessing apart from going through some of these things and valuing these kingdom values. I know that's hard because a lot of these things that the world values, they value them for good reason, don't they? 
It hurts to be poor. It hurts to grieve. It hurts to lose things in life, doesn't it? People or stuff or status or your home or relationship. It hurts to lose these things. So the people of the world aren't crazy necessarily. They actually, it's kind of understandable in some ways. But in the world, you don't have the greatest thing that there's, that's available. Christ, Jesus. Look, he, he doesn't say grief won't come. He doesn't say that. Weeping won't come or poverty won't come. He says, when you enter my kingdom, you value some things and you become suspect of these other things as your ultimate prize in life. He's saying, I'll free you in radical ways. I'll free you in a radical way of the power of the world's values. I'll free you from that, like he freed the Israelites. I'll free you from that. In a powerful way that so internally it changes your relationship to those things, but also inside the community. In the great crash of 2008, financial, real estate, you remember it, it wasn't that long ago. All that crash. We saw two different responses from two different types of businessmen and businesswomen. We saw two different responses. Same experience now, think about it. Two high-power executives leading companies. And I use men here because it was a unique two men in that time, how some of them responded. There was a unique response from men in the 2008 crash. It recorded really clear, very uh, looking back in history, you can see it. Think of two men. Both lost millions of dollars. Both lost their status, their position in a company. Both lost their real estate in the crash. One ends up jumping out a window, taking his life. And the other, yes, he wept. He felt the pain of loss, but he weathered it. He weathered the storm. And he actually came out the other side more resilient and a deeper faith and a trust in God and those things that were so important and were put in a better perspective in his life. Like, yeah, life isn't just those things the world values. There's so much more. Two different people, same experiences, two different responses. You see how we, those things will come, but how blessing can come in one but not the other if we're following Christ and valuing the things he values, and having faith. It doesn't mean you have to spurn wealth or even power or influence. Some of the greatest people that influence the world have been Christians with a great amount of influence, and you might even say power. But it, it does, Jesus does want us to be suspect of them because if they are your greatest value, those, that other set of values, they will always betray you. Always. They don't rule your life. We value the poor, the experience of loss, when we are outcasts for Jesus' sake. Think about it. Your career, your bank account, your resume, your health, your power, your status, your privilege, they will not die for you, will they? They won't die for you. In fact, if you place everything on them, your hope, they will actually betray you. That's why we can internally come together as a people, Jesus is doing this now. He's changing these values from the inside out. We can come together. We can be weaved together as a group of people that are from totally different backgrounds. That's why identity, identity markers of money, of class, political affiliation, of levels of power or reputation, those will never be the markers that the church can prize and rally around. It just won't work. It won't work. And the more we embrace the values of the kingdom, Jesus' values, guess what will happen? We will be a place where we find unity, and I mean real unity, amongst a group of people that don't all look the same. And I don't just mean the color of our skin. I just mean we'll be a diverse people, different interests, maybe some different opinions on things that aren't primary, secondary things. We'll be a, a united people but with some diversity as well. That's what happens when we value the kingdom values. And while the other things might be important to life and they're relevant, they're not what we value, value. We won't look down on people because they're not like us. We'll look eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder, 
over at them because what unites us is a gospel that says we are all sinners saved by grace. That's what unites us. And that gives us the ability to look at people are different and still be in the same room if we were united around the kingdom values. D.A. Carson, who was the, um, one of the co-founders of the Gospel Coalition, but he also is an evangelical free church guy. I don't know if you know his name, but he's a free church guy. He was taught at the seminary in Chicago, uh, Trinity Seminary, which is one of the free church seminaries. He said this about the ethical commands and us living together and how that happens. He said, the reason there are so many exhortations of the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because the church itself is not made up of natural friends. <laughs> it's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, it means a group of people, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and they owe him a common allegiance. In this light, we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Doesn't that make it clear? I mean, that's pretty clear. That's why I use quotes. Not because I just want to say, oh, here's some smart people, and I'm smart too. No, that's not it. Because they say it really clear in a way where I don't want to copy it, but I want to get the word across. Yeah, right? That's pretty clear. But it also means we'll have to be a people who love the people Jesus loved. So yeah, it means giving to the poor. It does. It means we'll love the outsider. It means we'll sit down next to the mourner rather than run from their pain. Because this is who Jesus goes to. This is what he prizes. But it also changes how we'll treat the outsider too. So the insider we talk about, now the outsider. Look at 27 and 28. But I say to you, we need to hear these verses again. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And abuse, uh, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Well, here's what this means. We've talked now about the outside. So inside, we see we're connected to God. It changes our relationship inside. We value different things. Therefore, we treat people differently inside the community. But what about those outside? That gets a little harder. Well, if, if this is true, that we'll have enemies and that we will interact with those outside the church, it, it first means this. We cannot have a privatized faith. You cannot have a privatized faith. Jesus says, you will have enemies. It implies that our Christianity will shape this community to look in such a way that what we prize, we get it. The world despises it. They despise and and we'll have enemies because of it. We don't intentionally go seeking enemies, but Jesus does say he does not let us get away with this. We cannot have a privatized faith We don't seek enemies. We don't act like an enemy. But he's just saying, if you value the things I value, it'll shape your community in a way that what you prize, the world will despise. And you'll have enemies because of it. It's unrealistic, I think, and actually naive to think that we'll always be able to exist in a way that is free from conflict from outside sources. Jesus says, love your enemies. He's implying we'll have them. So how has the church handled this throughout its history? A couple ways in our recent history. Two ways the church has handled this and the discomfort of this, not wanting to have enemies. There's a couple ways we've handled that over history. Two solutions. The first one was to withdraw, to pull away then from the community, to close up the drawbridge in an us versus them mentality, to scorn the world, to ridicule the world, to not have enemies just by proximity. That makes sense? To avoid enemies by just getting away from the entire world. And well, Jesus says you'll have enemies. And we're to love our neighbors, right? I mean, so that really doesn't, doesn't work out. It was called fundamentalism. It was to pull away, pull up the drawbridge. But if that's our method, how will we end up treating those that are different than us? We'll look down on them. We'll become self-righteous, exclusive, and forget our mission as apprentices to the world. So it's not really an option. We will have enemies, Jesus says, because we have different values, and it matters how we treat them. The other solution, that was the first one. The other solution 
is to compromise and to give up the things that Jesus truly values. Go along to get along, is that the phrase? I don't see Jesus giving us that option here either. I know this is hard. I know it's getting harder. That surely isn't the path he took. (laughs) That's the path you might call mainline Protestantism today. And some of those denominations will be dead by 2060. Pretty clear. We also can't adopt the view of Mr. Miyagi, can we? Well, your truth is your truth. Yours is yours. So everyone just decide what's right for them. How's that working out for us? (laughs) Not too well, is it? And it's actually a false view. So if you hold that view today, that you may, because that's a a vast majority of the people, it's a false view that everyone uh, can just have their own reality and, you know, we won't interact. Everyone has a view of reality and is trying to convert the rest of the world to it. Whether they're religious or secular, everybody's got it. So it's actually not really a a real view. Even if you say everyone should just decide for themselves what to value and how to live, Don't you see that's kind of an objective, all-encompassing truth and view that you're asking everyone to kind of adopt? (laughs) You're doing the very thing you're forbidding somebody from doing by saying all people should have their own truth and everyone should decide what's right for them. Don't you see that's an absolutizing truth? You're doing the same thing that you're telling them not to do. Everybody's got a view of the world that they're trying to convert everyone else to. Even that claim is an ultimate truth. So what are we to do? We can't go those three routes. We must value the things Jesus values. We must live in the world as truthful people and loving people. What matters is how how the truth leads us to treat others, Jesus says here, doesn't he? That's what matters. He's not saying you can compromise and give up. He's not saying pull away and get away by proximity. Or he's not saying, hey, just flatten it all and say there's no truth. Or you just decide your own truth. No. He says, you value the things he values, and they should lead us to treat others differently. It's actually a proper definition of tolerance. Tolerance has become co-opted by so many different people and been given so many different definitions. Tolerance is really treating others with dignity and respect in disagreement. It doesn't mean agree, but it means treat others that you don't agree with with dignity and respect. How do we do that? What does Jesus say? Look at verse 28. Oh, where is it? Yeah, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The first thing we have to do if you want to treat someone with tolerance or love or dignity who has a different view than you of the world, even if it's vastly different, it's got to be an internal thing. Pray. He says, pray for your enemy. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who don't even like you. We first pray for our enemies because as C.S. Lewis said, if you don't love someone, pray for that person. I'm summarizing. He said, you will, over time, begin to have your affections changed or feelings over time that will line up for your prayer. You can't hold bitterness and anger and hatred towards somebody for that long that you start to pray for regularly. You just can't. And that's why Jesus tells us, pray for your enemies because it actually works, is what Jesus is saying. Pray for the one who abuses you. Because to pray for someone is many times to let out from inside the frustration that we might have, the anger we might have. We don't vent our anger. We also don't stuff our anger. We pray our anger. That's what we do. So you pray for that person. It takes out our self-righteousness out. It kind of gets it. It's cathartic, I guess is the word. It gets it out of us. But do we do that? How many of us pray for the annoying neighbor or family member or the annoying coworker? How many of us prayed for Governor Brown during the lockdowns? Show of hands. How many of us pray for the other political party? See, it's an inner discipline. And Jesus says, do it for those who abuse you because it's an inner discipline that dignifies your enemy as an image bearer and drains you of the hostility or ill will you feel towards them. It actually works, Jesus is saying. It doesn't mean you agree with them. That isn't tolerance, actually. 
Tolerance is you hold to your conviction, but you treat them as an equal image bearer. That's what prayer does. And you even want the best for that person, even if you disagree. Can you imagine that? What that community would look like? If we wanted the best for those even we disagree with? That'd be pretty, that's pretty radical. That's hard to do. You're like, that doesn't even sound possible, Jeff. Well, it's not apart from point three, which we're going to get to in a minute. But here's a quote. As Miroslav Volf, he was a Croatian Protestant theologian, he said this, why is this, why is this so hard? Because forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. That's what Jesus is getting at here. We are humans, all of us. Even those we disagree with, Jesus says, pray for your enemy. Now, Jesus doesn't expect us to be doormats. I want you to hear that today. He doesn't expect us to be doormats. And many of us who have read this passage have said, well, you know, see, we're to be walked all over. Turn the other cheek. So just let anybody walk over, all over you. Be passive and just weak and mushy and just, eh, you know. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. You have to remember, this was a culture that didn't shake hands. They kissed on the cheek. So to greet. So turning the other cheek is continue to engage that person, to continue to engage that enemy in a loving way. Let me ask you this question. Is it loving if someone does evil against you, lies about you, cheats you, just to never say anything? Is that loving? It's not. You're right. It's not. What do you do? First, you pray, as Jesus said, to empty the ill will and restore their humanity in your eyes, and then you confront. It's, I mean, think about that. If we just let anybody do anything all the time and never talked about it, whether it was in church or the community or the world, that wouldn't be loving either. You pray about it, empty yourself of the ill will, and then you talk about it. See, in the church of the world, we've done one or two things. We've either kind of, I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to go after them. I'm going to get that person. They've done me ill will or evil. Or more likely in the church, we do this. We just uh, push it down. Uh, just suppress it, push it down and push it down and push it down. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Are you fine? I'm fine. <laughs> that doesn't work either. It doesn't work, and it's not honest. And actually, guess what? Both of those motives, revenge or just saying I'm fine, I'm fine, they're both selfish motives. Do you know that? One is revenge, and one is you want your comfort and to be liked and to not get into a really awkward, uncomfortable situation. They're both selfish motives. They're both selfish Jesus says, pray it and then speak it. But how is that possible? Let's look at our third truth, and this is short in the end. We're going to come back to it next week in the second part of this sermon, so this is pretty short today. But you grow to fit in the kingdom as you grow in your understanding of sin and salvation. So how do you grow into this type of person? As you grow in your understanding of sin and salvation, you will be fit to this kingdom more. Its values, its desires. It's, it's the gospel-centeredness we always talk about here. You see at the end here, Jesus does something kind of funny. He's kind of tongue-in-cheek playing a game with them right at the end of this passage. Um, he's using the word sin in a way that he doesn't really use it in other places. He's kind of going after them a little bit. He says to them, well, um, it's the last 32 to 36 there. He's telling them like, you know, you don't want to be like those sinners, do you? You don't want to be like those sinners. I mean, even sinners love those who love them. Don't be like those sinners. Don't be like them. They even do good to those who, who do good to them. Don't be a sinner like them. You don't want to be a sinner. Don't be a sinner. He's using the word in an us versus them way. He's kind of setting them up a little, a little bit. You don't want to be one of those sinners. My enemy is the sinner. They're the problem. He's kind of setting them up. But then we get to the close. Look at verse 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lead, and lend, excuse me, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You want to be sons of the Most High. Don't be like those sinners. You want to be sons of the Most High and like him, the one who loves evil people. He like takes it up a notch there. He says, you know, don't be like those sinners you're evil. <laughs> You're evil, he says. Guess what? He's telling them the insider and the outsider are evil. And it's God who shows mercy, mercy to both. Amen. 
to make them a child of God was the word Jesus used there. Both. We have to see that our understanding of sin is not deep enough. Remember the Wolf uh, quote? We exclude our enemy from the kingdom of humanity, or the common humanity. We exclude ourselves from the kingdom of the sinner. Jesus is doing it. Don't be a sinner, 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 sinner. Well, to be a child of God, you have to realize you're evil too, inside or outside. And Jesus died at the hands of his enemies while asking God to forgive them. That's what we have to see, to be made a child of God. Jesus died at the hands of his enemies while asking God to forgive them. See, it means that in the same breath, a Christian can admit, I am evil and yet ultimately loved. That's what this means. You can't do that in any other community. I'm evil, yet I'm, yet I'm ultimately loved. I'm a child of God. He has mercy on the evil. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. That's what we have to see. And if that is your core value, if that's what we prize, if that's what we value, if that's what drives us, a man dying for his evil enemies while forgiving them, we can't feel superior to anyone. Anyone. Or look down on anyone. That's the flattening of humanity right there. Insider or outsider needed the same savior. It's the gospel that does its work to fit us now as citizens of the kingdom ethic. So let's let that be our core value. We're going to look at some really interesting stuff next week and judging others and what does that mean. But let that be what drives us. You know who did it? An example? Stephen. Remember him, the first martyr? He followed the exact same path as his savior. He followed the kingdom ethic. Look, what did he say? And this is the end right here. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, the one stoning him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be kingdom people, and yet we know to be fit to that kingdom, it takes your power, your gospel, and your truth. And so, Lord, let us value things you value. And be suspect of things that you don't value. And as we come into this community, let it change how we interact with people inside and outside. May the gospel do its work of giving us a love for the lost, a love for the poor, and oh, a love for each other that the world can see. May we respond now in just a heart gratitude, Lord, that you are the God of the world, the one making a kingdom of new people in Jesus Christ's name and message and work. Amen.